the biggest thing you learn when you leave Capitol Hill is that information runs away from you. Whereas when you're on, hit on the Hill, you can be fat and happy because you're being crushed by information. On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of policy advocates working behind the scenes. Each week, one of these advocates and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to this new episode of 80 Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. And today we're broadcasting from one of the watering holes of D.C. In fact, a lot of people consider it the one and only watering hole of D.C. The tune-in near 4th and Pennsylvania Southeast, just literally a scroll down from our nation's capital. Uh, this is on everybody's list of the best dive bars in town. You will find people of all walks of life and persuasion at the Tune In, sometimes having breakfast and a beer at 8 o'clock when they open. It is on the site of D.C.'s first post-prohibition bar, and it became the Tune In in 1947, has been in the same family of owners since 1960, uh, now owned by Lisa Nardelli, the granddaughter of the original owner of the Tune In. It, this place is just so classic. It's lined with taxidermy that her grandfather, most of which hunted, trapped, fished, over the years. It went through a, a tough 2011 fire, but they have redone it. They've covered it up. It is looking great. In fact, the, some would say it's a little disappointing that you no longer can find duct tape on any of the booth seats, but it does work so well. Our guest expert today is Glenn Lemunyan with the Lemunyan Group. He has been a longtime fixture in Washington, both in politics and out. And Thank since you for two saying Washington and not the tune in. <laughs> well, I assume there's a history here as well. Yeah, I mean, you can't go wrong with the tune in, right? So I wanted to just dive in if we could. Now, your office is currently over like 300 New Jersey Ave, which is just on the other side yep. of the Capitol. You probably see the Capitol when you walk out the front door. I see it every day when I walk out of my office, yeah. But it's it's nothing like uh, walking out of the tune-in. It's uh, My office used to be a half a block from here, and uh, we used to come down to the tune-in uh, uh, quite often. Yeah, it's actually tune-in. When I came to Washington 36 years ago now, this was the first bar I ever is that right? Yeah. You know, I bet that's the case for a lot of people. Yeah. Very first bar, and I actually stayed uh, right around the corner here at Fifth and E, uh, across the little park there where the police station is. And uh, I can't, somebody told the person I was staying with said I should just come over here if I wanted to grab a burger and, and have a beer. And I came in and I sat at the bar. And the guy said, what do you have? What do you have? And I said, I have a Budweiser. And where he promptly turned away and walked away. And I couldn't get his attention for about the next 10 minutes. <laughs> Finally, a patron who was sitting next to me said, hey, um, they don't have a Budweiser here. He said, oh. He goes, why don't you try something else like uh, maybe a national a Natty Bo. 
And so finally he came back and I said, um, I'll have a national bohemian. <laughs> and and darn it, that beard didn't appear in less than 10 seconds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this, there are great stories of old timers, regular patrons showing up, and before they can make it through the door, the Natty Bo is standing there waiting for them. And back in the day, there was, there's menus today on the table, but back in the day, there were no menus. It was up by the speaker, which now there's a television. The, the, the menu was on the wall, and uh, that was it. And it was your choice of basically, you know, cheeseburger, cheeseburger, and cheeseburger. What you wanted with it, I guess, was the, uh, the yeah, option. Exactly. Um, Do you want cheese with that cheeseburger? Very uh, limited menu, but uh, but yeah, this this place has got a lot of history to it. And, uh, I was fortunate enough to work with James, who was our waiter today. Uh, he and I actually met 35 years ago. Wow. Um, I had left the Senate. I was actually working for a senator from New Jersey, my state, where I'm from. And I left there after the elections of 1984 because uh, I wanted to come work on the House side. My brother worked on the House side, so I kind of liked what he was doing. So it was my older brother. Yeah, got it. And so I got a job at the Hawk and Dove, and I got a job... Which is right next door. Right next door. Cool. And darned if uh, you know, I didn't meet a guy who I've known for that many years, Dale James, who's now the waiter here. Did that great. That's wonderful. Yeah. So I was looking on your website. I want to ask you a bit about your typical week, what you do on behalf of your clients. But I noticed a, a quote on your site that goes, our unique approach heightens the advocacy role, providing a fresh approach to lobbying and overcoming industry challenges. So you just take the lobbying phrase head on. You own it. Own it. You know, for there was a there was a period of time when people asked what I did, and I would say I'm a consultant. And I'm like, why? Why am I doing this? I'm a lobbyist. I'm a straight up lobbyist. That's what I am. Uh, for the most part, I'm a Republican lobbyist. Although I have my friends on the other side of the aisle, uh, they like me. I like them. We get things done together. I have six clients right now. I've had various iterations. Uh, I've had as many as 14 and four employees. Uh, and uh, you know, it's just a different style of business. Uh, you don't really make that much more because you have a lot more overhead. Right. You can only handle so much business. But my book of clients that I have now, I think I've had all of these clients for at least 10 years, some of them longer than 20 years. So when you're approached by or you approach a potential client, what's the value-add proposition that you offer them? It really depends on, on the client. Let's say it's a, in, in a large corporate situation, for example, many times I am value-added. I'm not going to be the guy for the whole corporation, you know, like, uh, but I will be a guy that knows, you know, either House leadership or Senate leadership or knows they might have a particular issue that needs to go through the Committee on Appropriations, for example. I happen to work on the Committee on Appropriations for nine years, so appropriations crosses everything, as you know. I oh, mean, yeah. Just every, every issue goes through appropriations, so it's really more of a fundamental mechanics type thing, mm -hmm. is why they come to me sometimes, um, and so that it's been very helpful, because, and the cool thing about doing appropriations is that yeah, you get to learn about so many other things that you normally wouldn't ever even learn, oh, that's like so Dallas true. Safari Club is, <laughs> you know, one of my favorite clients because they uh, such a wild card for me. I grew up on the beach in southern New Jersey. You were not a hunter. I was not a hunter. I mean, I hunt now, um, and I 
enjoy it, and, and I really, uh, if no other reason, I really understand it. Uh, I understand, you know, what what, what, uh, what hunting brings uh, to the table as far as land and animal conservation issues, uh, especially in Africa, whereas a lot of people don't. The whole concept of sustainable use, yeah. if you don't put a value on these, uh, on these different animal species, they're all just going to go away. People are going to hunt them for bushmeat, or they're just going to kill them for ivory or whatever. But yeah, uh, when you put a value on them, people manage them and want to keep more of them. Uh, to me, it's actually pretty pretty simple. But for these, a lot of these animal rights people, they cannot get past the fact of hunting and killing. They just can't. They yep. can't grasp the concept. So you touched upon how you're not the sole lobbyist for any of your clients. I assume that they, well, that's a very typical approach yeah. by most corporate for my smaller entities. clients, I am. Okay, so you do have some of that. Uh, oh, yeah. All right. Uh, probably most of my clients are, I would consider, small. Although some of them are corporate, and I'm still the only one. So you obviously have some clients where you are the sole face. You are the lobbying representative. Now, are these typically D.C.-based clients, or they are elsewhere? No, they're elsewhere. I mean, uh, it's... it's <laughs> Now that you put it that way, Bill, it's kind of troubling the fact that they would <laughs> just just have me. No, uh, these are lar- large organizations, and uh, they, you know, I've made them feel comfortable, I guess, over the years. Uh, my cargo airline company just has me. Uh, if you look at, uh, I won't say their name, but a competing cargo company, which is almost exactly the same size that we are, they have a whole team of people here in Washington with office space and the whole whole world. Yeah, what are they getting done that I'm not getting done? Probably not much different. Uh, but that's just me patting myself on the back a little bit. But, you know, for Dallas Safari Club, I'm the only game in town here. Uh, and uh, our biggest competitor, obviously, in that space is uh, Safari Club International. And I say competitor. We're, we're lightly competitors. We're pretty much on the same side just about every issue. We have just a different model of how our club is set up. And our conventions compete against each other. But I'm the only guy here in town. SCI has a whole team of people here in town. Now, t- hats off to them. To give them credit for something that we don't do, they get in, they get involved with the regulatory space, which we don't touch. Yeah. Well, and that takes a different team entirely. You can need to have legal counsel, right? Exactly. Right. So that's something we don't touch. Um, but then, like uh, uh, a company that is here in town, even though they're headquartered in North Carolina, would be Reynolds American. Uh, they're one of my clients, and. Uh, been representing them for years. They have a whole big tobacco. I mean, they have a whole room for it. Oh, sure. Uh, and so everybody there is considered value added. They each bring to the table a specific uh, strength, uh, if you will, a set of uh, areas that they're very versed in. Um, uh, particular state concentrations, maybe. Um, you know, I, I, I hope that they hire me for a lot of my Texas and Southeast connections uh, and people that I work with on Capitol Hill, uh, as well as uh, leadership. Being a former leadership staffer, I still have relationships with leadership today, and uh, I think that, that proves to an advantage to a corporation like Reynolds America. So pick any one of those clients where you are the primary face here in town. I mean, what's a typical week like working for that? Uh, it's the beauty of having ADD, Bill. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, every week is different. Every day is different, practically. And uh, 
which is one reason why I absolutely love this job. But uh, depending on, you know, what their needs are, sometimes it's very, very intense. It can be very intense for weeks, if not months. And then other times uh, you find yourself, uh, you know, picking up the phone. I have one client that I'm actually working a hell of a lot for right now. Um, but uh, there was a time, probably a few years back, when I would call them once a week, and they'd be like, yeah, 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 Glenn, you're, you're good. Yeah, well, i got to go. And I'm like, okay, as long as you're comfortable paying the check. Yeah, um, right. But, yeah, so it comes and goes with a lot of these clients. And, uh, you know, and some, some hire you just for very specific, like, rifle shot type things, mm-hmm. which I try and shy away from. I like the bigger package, but my second oldest client is the National Ag Aviation Association, National Agricultural Aviation Association. I've been working with them since uh, about 2000, and uh, I helped them with an appropriations matter uh, on the Aerial Application Research Program in in Bryant, I'm sorry, College Station, uh, Texas. Home of Texas A&M. Texas A&M, and uh, it was directly associated with A&M, now it's not. Now it's its own entity uh, run by USDA. Okay. And uh, but they uh, they're great, and I uh, you know get some politicians down there occasionally. We have a two seater aircraft, and uh, you know there's something about any politician that's done it. They'll tell you that uh, getting up at uh, seven in the morning, flying about five feet above uh, heads of lettuce, uh, can really uh, wake you up. <laughs> I bet it at does. 150 miles an hour. So you mentioned this is a USDA sponsored program. So I assume that you're working some appropriations issues, making sure the USDA gets the budget they need to keep this program up and running. Correct. Uh, the whole thing started out originally, uh, back in the early 2000s, they hired me to uh, get an earmark. Ooh, oh, earmarks. And I was successful. Uh, we got an earmark in there for aerial application, and we kept that earmark going until, uh, I guess it was 2007, when earmarks went away. And uh, when they went away, I almost put myself out of a job because I got USDA to take our earmark and that same amount of an earmark and turn it into a budget lab. Uh-huh. And so I remember my guys calling me and my client calls me saying, hey, uh, we're in the budget now. Um, so, and I'm like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. <laughs> You're not going to get rid of me that fast. So... Uh, We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Explain the difference for us. Just take a step back. You talked about an earmark. That's more of a seasonal or annual funding vehicle right now. Being in the budget is more substantial. Why? Oh, it's when uh, the budget comes down from the White House, uh, which is a collection of all the budget requests from every agency. Uh, For the most part, Congress accepts that, and they adjust things accordingly, but they rarely take things out. 
Yes. So to be in the budget is a much more rock solid way of being fun. This is not a big program. We're talking about a million seven a year, something like that now. And it really hasn't gone up in many years. Uh, and while the costs of actually having the program have inched up over the years. So, and, but we're, we're not unhappy as a group. We're still fine. Would we like a little more money in there? Yeah. But hey, we're, we're all, um, to be perfectly frank, we're all fairly conservative Republicans and we understand that everybody's got to do some belt tightening. So we're fine with what we're getting and we're doing a lot of work with that money. So, um, but yeah, being in the budget is, is lock solid and uh, it tends to, uh, not, it's never a guarantee. Uh -huh. But now my focus, instead of going to members of Congress trying to uh, explain to them uh, why they would need an earmark, I now uh, go to USDA. I go to the Department of Agriculture and I talk to the folks at ARS uh, and uh, Agriculture Research Service. And, you know, we talk to them about our program. And they love the fact, and we always get report language you know, every year in the uh -huh. appropriations bill. No, it's not. It's just report language. It's non-binding language that says uh, the committee likes this program. Yeah. ARS absolutely loves the fact that we put that little blurb in there every year because bottom line is when they're sitting around late fall developing next year's budget, following year's budget, uh, you know, it's a squeaky wheel gets the grease. And if, if there's nobody defending uh, this particular program or any program for that matter, they can disappear. And so we have that report language in there, so we let them know that Congress is watching this, and they are, and that's part of my job. And uh, they love the fact that uh, they can still fund this program after all these years. So it sounds like while there may not be a typical week, there are certain activities that you're going to do and certain activities that are foreseen enough where you can plan those contacts, go see this person, make sure we're getting this taken care of, right? But then lobbying is so much more than that. There's this whole network and relationship aspect to it. What amount of time do you think you put in on the one-to-one, -one, the personal connection? Okay, that's a lot, and it's gotten harder over the years. Why is that? Well, not that, not that it was a, a tool to buy votes ever, but taking somebody to lunch, for example, I can't even do that. Yep. Can't even take them out for a beer. Yeah. Uh, staffers that are, and they work hard, but it's hard to ever get them apart uh, to actually develop a relationship or even have the amount of time sometimes yeah. necessary to talk issues through. Well, and the turnover rate is so high in those positions, you're probably constantly reinducing yourself, reintroducing your issues. A couple years ago, I figured out it was just under two years oh. is the average stay for a staff. Oh. And then, you know, they pay notoriously horrible. Yep. Uh, they always have. And um, But that's not why you take the job, really. You take the job because of what you can learn and how close you can be to you know folks that actually have their fingers on the voting button, which is kind of cool. It makes it really, really neat. It's a great job. Yeah. Best job I ever had. You just don't make, any, don't make much money doing it. No, I've always described working on Capitol Hill as the best grad school in the country uh, because you get paid to learn so much so about so many different issues. You can be as diverse or as concentrated as you want to be at Capitol Hill. That's exactly right. It's, it's, it's amazing how, uh, how much you learn. I, I tell people, you know, I'll ask kids, you know, when I walk into an office, I'll see a young kid at the front desk, I'll go, interning or working? And they'll go, interning. I go, oh, where are you in school? And they'll tell me, and 
what do you major in? Oh, poli sci. And I'm like, oh. I go, yeah, I'd rather hear economics or business or something because I think you learn more about political science in your first six months working on the Hill uh, than you could ever learn in kind of class. But in the end, I'm, I'm more of an educator. I mean, my wife keeps telling me I'd be a great you know, college professor. Oh, retirement. I can see that. So, yep. Which I would absolutely love, but I'm not going to retire anytime soon with two sets of twins. But the, uh, um, but it, it's more of an educator, and you have to, uh, you have to have a, you have to have your message down. So it's not just who you know; it's right. the context. You have, you know, 15, 20 minutes to make your case in front of a 25-year-old staff, and you're asking their boss to 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 look at a situation in a certain way. Uh, that's not necessarily that easy. That's warming them up with emails and, and, and memos in advance of this meeting. And then you have to try and get them to read them. Because right. these kids are all overworked. Oh uh, they're all way overextended, just like their bosses are overextended. So to kind of cut through the noise and get your uh, get your you know your knowledge in there and your education in there, it takes a little doing. It takes practice. And yeah, I mean, I've been doing it now for 30-some years. So it's, it's yeah. getting a little bit easier. What other ways do you build relationships? Well, leave it to politicians to uh, uh, make the easiest way uh, to meet their staff and to meet them uh, at fundraisers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which I found interesting that uh, none of that was off limits. So, uh, But it, st it works. I'm not going to complain about it because it's wonderful, actually. And, uh, yeah. and I think uh, a lot of members really uh, appreciate, you know, uh, the, edu the level of education that they can get uh, by talking to lobbyists. Uh, any any proper legislator knows that lobbyists are a part of doing business and they need them. Uh, people that you know say, "Oh yeah, lobbyists are you know wrecking things." No, no, we're not. Uh, and that's just a misnomer out there. And uh, you know, I defend my profession, even though our, our approval rate for lobbyists is way low. And I get that. The media has just ripped us to shreds. But it's uh, it's just not true. I'm more of an educator than anything else. Well, you have to be because these Capitol Hill staff, even members, but Capitol Hill staff in particular, are given so many issues they have to follow. Their members have to vote on so many topics, and they can't be an expert. No one can be an expert, and no one has enough hours in the day to become an expert on these. So turning to a lobbyist like yourself has to be of value to them, someone who has the bandwidth to focus on 10, 12 issues at one time. And, and, and what's, what's so amazing about this, and we were alluding to it earlier, is it's almost ludicrous to think, when you put it in this perspective, it's almost ludicrous to think that I'm going to buy some member's vote because I took their staff for a burger to tune in. Yeah. You know, it doesn't make any sense to me. But they got rid of it, and that's fine. Uh, most of the time, I uh, build relationships up where I can still come here and they have to hand me a $10 bill or whatever for their burger. It's kind of embarrassing almost. But, um, yeah, I, you just have to work on it. You have to, um, I think, you, the, the relationships are developed almost naturally and organically when you're helping them out so much uh -huh. with their research. Like if it's something that's important for their boss and you're giving them all the arguments that they need, both sides of the arguments, by the way. I, as a lobbyist, I, I deliberately go out of my way to show Stafford both sides of an issue, not just my side. Right. I'll tell them what my side is, there's no doubt about it, but I'll tell them exactly what they're going to be hearing from the other side. Uh, so they know that, you know, they understand kind of, they can cut through, they can see through the glass, so to speak, and 
uh, and understand what they need to tell their boss. I'm sure you come across as an honest broker when you do it that way, too. Yeah, I mean... It, They'd be more willing to turn back to you again and again. In this town, uh, as a lobbyist, the reputation is all you have. Yeah, so true. Yeah, that, that was destroyed. I lose my clients, and staffers would never talk to me. I mean, it would be, yeah, yeah. you can't have that. So I go out of my way to show people both sides of an issue, who they'll be hearing from, what these other entities are, are thinking about, talking about. Uh, yeah. Let me ask you how you got started in town. Why, why did you come to D.C.? You mentioned that you're from Jersey. All right. But I know you went to school in the Midwest. You're a Valpo I right? did. Well, you know, I got a hats off to my brother, my older brother, Jim. He, uh, I followed him to college. Uh, he went to Valparaiso University in Indiana. And uh, why I wanted to go to a place where it's 20 degrees below zero in the winter, I'll never know. Um, when my brother graduated, he actually came to Washington, got a job with uh, then uh, a Republican from California, Ed Shaw, a moderate from the Silicon Valley. Okay. And, uh, you know, he uh, was there a couple years before I got here. And the uh, job market wasn't too keen in, uh, in uh, fall of 1983. Mm -hmm. uh, it was pretty rough, in fact. And... Uh, I was looking for a job here in Washington, sleeping on his couch for a couple of weeks, and then uh, he goes, look, he goes, why don't you just take an internship? You, know, you don't get paid, but just take it. You're, you're in the job mix, you know, you'll meet people and stuff like that. Right. Sure enough, he was right. I took a job working for uh, my, uh, I was interning for my member of Congress from Southern New Jersey, then Congressman Bill Hughes, oh, sure. a, um, a good moderate Democrat. Uh, I really liked. Uh, he's still around, still alive. Lives in Ocean City, New Jersey. I grew up just outside Ocean City, New Jersey. And, uh, within a month, I had a job, a uh, paying job, uh, over on the Senate side, working in the mailroom. Oh, and, boy. Uh, but, you know, you meet even more people then, and uh, you just start talking to people. And, uh, and then the elections of late 84, uh, November of 84, came around, and uh, I met this... Uh, in early 85, I met this guy named Tom DeLay, who was trying to fill out his uh, staff, his original staff, and I could write. I can write letters. And for, back then, it was different. There was no email. But, right. Uh, it, was, uh, it was letters, and yep. lots of thousands a week sometimes. Yep. And, and, and as a staffer, you were responsible for turning out the response for the boss to sign within a very short period of time. Very too. short. You can't let things like that get old. So we would uh, we would have strict turnaround, and uh, yeah, that was probably at least half the job is sure. just cranking out mail. And so if you could write, uh, that helped, and uh, you could knock it out real quick, and then you know legislative uh, uh, priorities uh, on top of that, and then meetings with who knows who. However many meetings when they were when the house was in session or out of session for that matter, so yeah, it's it's a big job. Yeah. So if memory serves, Tom was on the appropriations committee. So is that where you cut your appropriations team? Yeah, he uh, his freshman year he was on public works and transportation, which is now transportation infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was just a legislative correspondent. And then when he got on appropriations, he asked me to go be associate staff for the committee, uh, and I, I did that for the next nine years. And then uh, I'm dealing with several subcommittees, from D.C. subcommittee to military construction subcommittee to transportation subcommittee, which I really love, transportation, great. And then uh, when he became majority whip in uh, early 95, I was a floor assistant to the whip uh, for about a year and a half, and then it was time for me to go. So, do, do explain what a floor assistant does. A floor assistant uh, just helps uh, the whip uh, count and pass votes on the House floor. Um, so in my position, I was responsible for uh, probably about five of the different uh, subcommittees on appropriations and anything coming out of transportation infrastructure. 
So if there was a transportation infrastructure bill on the floor and they had amendments or whatever, it would be my responsibility to figure out, well, A, what those amendments were going to be, right. and then B, uh, if the leadership wanted to take a particular position on should they pass or not, uh, or should they be whipped or not, do they need to be whipped, or can we let, can we let you know, members vote the way they want to vote? Uh, or does leadership have a position? And so Tom was leadership, so on a particular bill, usually final passage or some large type of amendment, uh, the whip would be the person responsible for making sure the bill passes. Because the majority typically does not bring a bill to the floor that they cannot pass. Uh, and that's because the whip knows in advance by counting those votes. Uh, and, and also to find out where the problems are. Okay, so you left there, what, 96, you say? July 96. Okay, so there's a few years there before the founding of the La Munion Group. founding of the La Munion Group. Yes, a good friend of mine who I developed a relationship while in the whip office was uh, former Secretary of Transportation Jim Burnett. Oh, Jim was uh, a, uh, he was the last Secretary of Transportation under Reagan. One day, I guess it was like June of 96, uh, you know, he calls and says, hey, you ever, ever thought about coming down here? Uh, here being the department. Yeah, no, it is, he's, he's at the law firm. He's at the law yes. firm. Okay. He was at uh, Winston and Strong, a big Chicago-based law firm. And my direct boss, when I left and went there, was uh, uh, former Congressman Burl Anthony, Arkansas, who was uh, also still around. So great, great Ways and Means member. Just a fabulous guy. Um, wonderful boss. Uh, gave you all the rope you wanted to hang yourself if you wanted to. Uh, he would just let you make decisions, uh, but he would be there to advise at all times. So I, between Jim and Burl Anthony, I learned a lot. And let me tell you, it's not, you know, people say, oh, the revolving door, you know, you leave Capitol Hill and you become a fat cat lobbyist. No, that's just not the way it works for several reasons. One, I mean, the biggest thing you learn when you leave Capitol Hill is that information runs away from you. So if you're not good at gathering well information, and information is running away from you. Whereas when you're on hit on the hill, you can be fat and happy because you're being crushed by information. I mean, you're throwing everything away because you're being crushed with so much information. And that's just not the case when as soon as you leave the hill. And, and the second was, and, and, uh, and Jim Burnley told me this, um, when I met with him before I actually got hired, and he said to me, he goes, you actually have to learn how to be a lobbyist. One of the, his best pieces of advice to me was, take those handful of lobbyists that you know and like, that you like their style. You know, not the person so much, you like their style. How they do things, how they educate you on issues, how they operate. Uh, their personality. He goes, take all that and try and combine it all together and then create your own nuance of that. Uh, and that worked well for me. So were you expected to go drum up new business when you were Winston Strong? Not at the start. They had enough business and they knew where I came from, uh, where they were comfortable in me just servicing a lot of uh, different issues. So it was, uh, it was probably almost a year before I had brought in my first client. Uh, and then two others quickly followed. Uh, now, did they follow you when you set up Lum Onion Group? They did, and there was no hard feelings at all. Yeah. I'm not an attorney, as you know. Uh, and law firms, I think, historically, don't necessarily understand non-attorneys within their system. Yeah. Nothing against a big law firm, but they're, their overhead's different than mine. Uh, I have, you know, single-digit overhead, and um, I 
like it that way, and uh, law firms do not. So I, I was I was fully able to bring all three of my clients with me at the time, uh, those three, and then quickly uh, developed uh, book a business after that. Once people knew I left, I had people calling me, which was a wonderful thing. Well, it sure sounds like you've made a good run of it, and yeah. I wish you all the success in the world. And this is going to wrap up our current episode of 80 Proof Politics. I want to thank our guest, Bert, Glenn Lemonian. I want to thank the great folks that tune in. I hope you come down and visit them sometime. And remember, kids, no matter what you think about politics in D.C. these days, whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, there's plenty of room to fill your drink. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Bill. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.